the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be with you this afternoon. Today we're going to talk with Alan Fadling. He's the author of An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence. This is a follow-up to his best-selling book, An Unhurried Life. So um, this deals more with the exterior life, and we'll talk with him about that uh, later this hour. We're also going to talk with Kevin Mooney. He's a reporter for The Daily Signal. We're going to talk about what's happening with the Hopewell Valley Regional Board of Education in New Jersey. Their school district has partnered with an LGBT advocacy group to impose transgender policy, uh, and uh, parents were not um, told ahead of time. They were not given an opportunity to weigh in. It's a rather interesting story, but of course it could never happen here. Hmm. Kevin Mooney will join us in the five o'clock hour, and we'll try to wind our way through some of the top news stories uh, of the day. Wanted to uh, take a moment and give you an update on the status of Dan Rice. We learned earlier today that the very thing we dreaded most is upon us. He does, in fact, have an infection in his heart valve, but um, we're grateful they've identified the specific strain and uh, will begin treating it with antibiotics through a device he'll wear for the next couple of weeks, and we are hopeful that Unlike the previous occasions when we've had a similar situation, this time it will work and that will not lead to um, a surgery on his uh, on his heart. So appreciate your prayers. And if it crosses your mind, if you'd remember Dan Rice in prayer over the next uh, several weeks, we don't know how long the antibiotics will be. Um, he'll have to have that administered. But last time we did this, it was 24-7 and he wore a device that just did the pumping um, on, a, on a, a regular basis. So we're hopeful that this will result in a um, a good res- a good outcome we'll put it that way so that's the latest on Dan Rice well as you know the GOP Senate uh, unveiled their Obamacare overhaul no it's not the same as the house version and it's not altogether clear that the Senate's going to uh, Senate Republicans are going to support it but today they unveiled a draft version of their health care reform bill that cuts Medicaid ends penalties for people not buying insurance and reshapes subsidies to low-income users the bill was revealed by the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell it could go to a vote as early as next week Senate Republicans made the proposal public in a bid to stem criticism that they'd been slow to respond to the House version of an Obamacare overhaul more Americans are going to get hurt if um, we do nothing, McConnell said from the Senate floor. More Americans um, will benefit. Well, the measure would repeal tax increases Obama's law imposed on higher income people, um, medical industry companies to pay for expanded coverage, and it would end the tax penalty that Obama's um, uh, statute imposed on people who don't buy insurance, in effect, ending the so-called individual mandate. 
Well, the legislation would face a potential reconciliation battle with House Republicans who passed their own Obamacare overhaul in May by a narrow 217-213 vote. Some Republican senators immediately rejected the House version, saying they might uh, use parts of it but would largely start fresh. To the extent that the House solves problems, we might borrow ideas, said Senator Lamar Alexander at the time. That's back in May. We can go to conference with the House or they can pass our bill. Well, like the House bill, the Senate measure would block federal payments to Planned Parenthood. Many Republicans have long fought that organization because it provides abortions. It it is, in fact, the number one provider of abortions in the country. The Senate would also provide $50 billion over the next four years that states could use in an effort to shore up insurance markets around the country. For the next two years, it would also provide money that insurers use to help lower out-of-pocket costs for millions of lower-income people. And Trump has been threatening to discount continue those payments, and some insurance companies have cited uncertainty over those funds as reasons why they're abandoning some markets and boosting premiums. Well, they've been abandoning markets and boosting premiums long before uh, before Trump took office, but that's the latest excuse. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said the House bill would cause 23 million people to lose coverage by 2026. The Budget Office's analysis of the Senate measure is expected in the next few days. Some Republican senators have already expressed skepticism over the legislation, the secrecy in which it was drafted, and the speed with which McConnell said he'd like to have it passed. And this is the very thing the Republicans so were critical of the Democrats for having done, and now the Democrats, having already done it, are critical of the Republicans for threatening to do. Hope you could follow that. Well, McConnell has a very slim margin of error. The bill would fall if uh, three of the Senate's 52 GOP senators vote against it. That's highly likely. Senator Dean Heller, facing a tough reelection fight next year, said he had serious concerns about the bill's Medicaid reductions. If the bill is good for Nevada, I'll vote for it. If not, I won't. Another Republican lawmaker who could decide the fate of McConnell's bill is um, Maine Senator Susan Collins, who said she was unhappy with the process ahead of Thursday's announcement. The latest proposal also faces uniform opposition from Senate Democrats. No surprise there. Uh, the Senate health draft uh, repeals Obamacare taxes. It provides bigger subsidies for low-income uh, Americans than did the House bill. And there are four key Republicans who have come out against the GOP plan. Uh, these key uh, senators came out against the plan today, and their opposition is enough to defeat the package before the vote. I mentioned a couple, but they're not even the, the two that I'm thinking of. We're talking about Senators Rand Paul. Senator Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Ron Johnson said that they would not vote on the Senate Republican plan in its current form. That means DOA, dead on arrival. Currently, for a variety of reasons, we're not ready to vote for this bill, but we are open to negotiation and obtaining more information before it is brought to the floor. Uh, There are provisions in this draft that represent an improvement to the current health care system, but it does not appear this draft is as written was uh, rather will accomplish the most important promise that we made to Americans to repeal Obamacare and lower their health care costs. End quote. That's a statement from the four. Rand Paul told reporters on Capitol Hill uh, today that if members who support the bill know they don't have the votes needed, discussion would begin earlier. So that's part of their strategy. I didn't run on Obamacare light, Paul said. I think we can do better than this. My hope is not to defeat the bill, but to make the bill better. He added, now the discussion will begin. I think it uh, could be 
uh, could take longer than a week. Well, Ted Cruz, he acknowledged that he had not yet had the opportunity to fully review the bill in its entirety, but said there are components that give give me encouragement. And there are also components that are a cause for deep concern. So perhaps this will be the beginning of what is likely to be a long, protracted debate among Republicans before it even has an opportunity to be vetted by the Democrats who have already panned it as um, insufficient and a death knell to Americans all across the country and that sort of classic exaggeration. Anyway, it's been introduced. Uh, We know that there are sufficient numbers of Republicans who will not uh, support it in its current form. So uh, at least discussion will follow. And that deadline that uh, Mitch McConnell suggested he really wanted to try to uh, meet will uh, will not be met. We'll just put it that way. All right, you're, ta- you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got Alan Fadling coming up later this hour, the author of An Unhurried Leader. He's the best-selling author of An Unhurried Life. This is the follow-up. We'll talk with him later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned, seven weeks after the House of Representatives passed the American Health Care Act, today the Senate released their discussion draft that would prevent women from using federal tax credits to buy plans that cover abortion and that blocks the nation's largest abortion mill, Planned Parenthood, from receiving federal funds for one year. Now, it's a little frustrating that it's only for one year, but nonetheless, that's the beginning. The bill would also repeal and replace Obamacare, give states wider latitude in opting out of its regulations. Well, like the House passed bill, the discussion draft creates a new set of tax credits for people to purchase insurance that includes a spending rider that prohibits federal funding for going, uh, rather, from going towards most abortions. It also cuts off uh, federal family planning funds for birth control, SDD uh, testing, cancer screening from going to organizations that also provide abortions. It would go to other organizations that do not, and there are plenty of them. That's a, pr- a provision, rather, that would result in federal funding being cut off from organizations like Planned Parenthood. Well, under Obamacare, you might recall, payments of premiums under qualified health plans would result in a tax credit. A couple, for example, if a couple has purchased a qualified health plan, they would be able to receive a tax credit based on the amount the couple paid in premiums for that plan. However, the draft of the bill contains a provision that disqualifies any health plan that provides coverage for abortions from being a qualified health plan. The discussion draft will also allow small business employers to receive credits for purchasing a health plan and providing it to their employees. As with the individual plan, this credit doesn't include health plans that provide coverage for abortion. Well, Liberty Council was among several organizations that met with the vice president at the White House to discuss concerns and suggestions for protecting the unborn in the new health care plan. As a steadfast opponent of Obamacare's abortion mandates, they filed the first private lawsuit against the so-called Affordable Care Act on the same day it was signed into law. So Matt Staver, the founder and chairman of the Liberty Council, had this to say about the draft that was made available earlier today. We are grateful to have an administration in Washington that wants to stop the murder of unborn babies with taxpayer money through Obamacare. He went on to say that people with sincerely held religious beliefs should not be forced to fund or support abortion. Although the Senate's discussion draft of the American Health Care Act is certainly not perfect, it strikes an important blow to giant abortion providers such as Planned Parenthood. We encourage the Senate to keep these pro-life provisions within the bill and help defund Planned Parenthood. We must fight to make the womb a safe place again. And again, that defunding of Planned Parenthood and other organizations similar to it 
only extends for a period of one year, which is a bit frustrating, but we'll just leave it at that. Well, President Trump tweeted, okay, that's not news. He tweets all the time, but he tweeted today and said, and I quote, I did not make and do not have any recordings of conversations with ex-FBI Director James Comey, ending speculation that he started about whether he had taped private talks with the since-fired Comey. Now, this whole thing could have been a non-story. It wouldn't have been brought up if the president himself had not suggested there might be tapes. Well, with all of the recently reported electronic surveillance, intercepts, unmasking, and illegal leaking of information, I have no idea whether there are tapes or recordings of my conversations with James Comey, he went on to say, but I did not make and do not have any such recordings, he wrote in a pair of uh, tweets. So he apparently was suggesting in the original tweet that while he was not making recordings, others might, given the fact that there's so much leaking going on. So that's apparently the point he was attempting to make. Um, uh, the president jump-started questions about whether he had tapes when he tweeted a warning that was back in May the 12th to Comey, whom Trump suspected of leaking into the press after the May 9th firing regarding private conversations between he and the president, which we now know was the case. Well, James Comey better um, hope there are no tapes and our conversations before he starts leaking to the press, he wrote. Um, he has disputed some of the details of Comey's versions version, rather, of their one-on-one encounters. And in fact, some I I know to be uh, false because he had um, participated in a book that contradicts some of what uh, he said in those uh, uh, hearings under oath. Well, the White House declined to provide further insight into the president's original tweet, and spokespeople wouldn't confirm or deny the presence of any recording equipment in the Oval Office. Representative Adam Schiff, the California Democrat who serves as the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee, tweeted earlier Thursday that Trump was due to reveal the answer to the mysterious tapes question by the following day. Deadline to turn over any tapes of Comey conversations to House Intel, if they exist, is Friday. Time is running out for White House to comply, Schiff wrote. And again, this was a tweet. Uh, White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said Trump's tweets were extremely clear and there was nothing to add. Asked if Trump intended to threaten Comey with his original tweet about tapes. Sanders said, not that I'm aware of. I don't think so. Well, former President Richard Nixon infamously recorded many of his Oval Office encounters, which came into play during the downfall of his presidency. Few presidents since are known to have recorded many, if any, of their White House encounters, having learned from Uh, Nixon and the fact that those tapes were uh, used to undermine his waning presidency. Well, the nation's leading source of information on U.S. charities is facing mounting criticism for using a controversial hate group designation enlisting uh, for some well-known and broadly supported conservative nonprofits. GuideStar, which calls itself a neutral uh, aggregator of tax data on charities recently incorporated hate group labels produced by the left-wing Southern Poverty Law Center. Well, the decision by the tracker of nonprofits prompted 41 conservative leaders to protest the move in a letter provided exclusively to the Daily Signal. The letter was dated the 21st, and it asks the website to drop the hate group labels put on 46 organizations. GuideStar's use of the hate group designation for certain organizations, many of them Christian, unfairly and inaccurately adopt, uh, adopts the aggressive political agenda of Southern Poverty Law Center, the, the leaders write. Among the organizations represented are Family Research Council, the American Freedom Defense Initiative, the Immigration Reform Law Institute, 
the American College of Pediatricians, the National Task Force for Therapy Equality, the American Family Association, the London Center for Policy Research, and the Jewish Institute for Global Awareness. In the letter to GuideStar, President and CEO Jacob Harold, the conservative leader, uh, writes, We, the undersigned organizations and individuals, write to express our strong disagreement with GuideStar's newly implemented policy that labels 46 American organizations as hate groups. Your designations are based on determinations made by the Southern Poverty Law Center, a hard-left active organization. As such, SPLC's aggressive political agenda pervades the construction of its hate group listings. Well, a biography of Harold on GuideStar's website describes him as a social change strategist. He is seen in this uh, in a tweet participating in January in the Women's March in Washington, D.C., which opposes the new president holding a sign. It turns out that facts matter. Well, prior to joining GuideStar, Harold worked for the Hewlett Foundation's philanthropy program as a climate change campaigner for Rainforest Action Network and Greenpeace USA and as an organizing director of Citizens Works. Signers of the letter sound their concern that GuideStar, which calls itself a neutral public charity, is using the Southern Poverty Law Center's much contested language to flag hate groups, organizations that they disagree with. I think that what GuideStar is doing is another attack on conservative Christian organizations and individuals. Jerry Boynkin, who is the retired Army general, who is executive president of the Family Research Council, told the Daily Signal, we've seen the same thing from other places that to include certain media outlets, GuideStar says that they are neutral, but they are anything but. In fact, they are, I would say at this point, becoming an arm of the ultra left. Well, Matt Staver, who also signed the letter and is the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, a legal group focusing on religious liberty told the Daily Signal in a phone interview that he detects purposeful motivation behind GuideStar's flagging. The intent there is obviously to harm, I think, these organizations. Foundations, corporations, and other institutions look at listings by such organizations as GuideStar when they determine where to make tax-exempt contributions. They're unlikely to donate money to any organization labeled as a hate group, the conservative leaders argue. A GuideStar spokesman said that in an email Wednesday that the website will change some of the language. GuideStar, they wrote, draws information from thousands of distinct sources, each of them imperfect. In aggregate, those sources help us offer a multidimensional view of nonprofits. However, we recognize that the Southern Poverty Law Center data is especially controversial. We are changing the text description of this data and reconsidering where and how we present it on our website. Well, the change will appear within a few days, the spokesperson said. Uh, Family Research Council's Boynkin said GuideStar has two options. I think their choices are either take this label down that you have put on these different organizations, all of which are conservative Christian, or acknowledge that you are politically active arm of the liberal progressive movement in America, he said. Matt Staver said his organization, one of those flagged by GuideStar as a hate group, asked Harold to promptly remove that label. So, 41 organizations are joining together. We are asking GuideStar's CEO to respond to me within a very quick turnaround time to reverse its course and cease this false and defamatory labeling that it is using on its website, Staver told the Daily Signal, referring to the letter he had sent to GuideStar. Among the signers, Edwin Fulner, founder and president of the Heritage Foundation, the parent organization of the Daily Signal, two other fixtures of the conservative think tank, Heritage board member Edwin Meese III, and Action CEO. CEO Michael Needham also signed the letter. 
Uh, Heritage is not labeled a hate group by either the Southern Poverty Law Center or GuideStar. Organizations such as the Family Research Council are well aware of the implications of the messaging that GuideStar is perpetrating. Floyd Corkins, the man convicted in of a 2012 attempt to massacre employees at the Family Research Council, was inspired by the Southern Poverty Law Center's description of the Christian pro-life research organization as a hate group. In an interview with the FBI, Corkin said a list of Southern Poverty Law Center's websites motivated his attack. Uh, they acknowledge the connection. The letter notes that James T. Hodgkinson, the man who police uh, say tried to gun down Republican lawmakers last week, he liked the Southern Poverty Law Center on Facebook. House Majority Whip Steve Scalise was gravely wounded in the gunman's attack on the 14th during practice for the congressional baseball game just outside Washington in Alexandria, Virginia. Again, the link, the Southern um, uh, Liberty, um, S- Southern Poverty Liberty Council. We'll follow the story and let you know what ultimately happens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Alan Fadling. His book, An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. An unhurried leader is my next guest, Alan Fadling's follow-up to his award-winning book, An Unhurried Life. He says he wanted to deal with the dynamics in his outer life of relationships, work, and leadership, where he finds it most challenging to follow Jesus in an unhurried way. He's attempted to make things happen fast when fruit that lasts nearly always takes time to produce. So he's addressing a reality in our culture that sees hurries as an apparent virtue. In an unhurried light, an unhurried leader, rather, the lasting fruit of daily influence, he unfolds what it means for leaders to let Jesus set the pace, discovering is, um, discovering along the way, rather, that unhurried leadership is actually more fruitful because uh, it is more unhurried and not in spite of that slower pace. So we're going to talk about that with uh, Alan Fadling. He is president and founder of Unhurried Living, Inc. in uh, Mission Vejo, California, inspiring people to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better. I love that. He speaks and consults internationally with organizations such as Saddleback Church, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Crew, Halftime Institute, Apprentice Institute, and Open Doors International. He is the award-winning author of An Unhurried Life, honored with Christian uh, Christianity Today Award of Merit in Spirituality, and he's also a contributing editor to Eternal Living, Reflections on Dallas Willard's Teaching on Faith and Formation. He is a certified spiritual director, lives in Mission Vejo with his wife and their three sons. He joins us to talk about his latest book, An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I love the idea of really examining the pace at which we engage in leadership. And I appreciate that you define leadership more broadly than those who have an official title and role in the church. <laughs> so let's talk about yeah. to whom this book applies. Yeah. I, you know, sometimes when we hear the word leadership, we sort of imagine somebody who's got a, you know, some major scope of organizational or positional authority. But I like to think of uh, leadership as influence. And in that sense, we each of us have opportunities for leadership, for influence in our relationships, in our roles, in the, the different places where God's planted us in our actual lives. Now, you use uh, illustrations from Scripture, personal examples, um, leadership wisdom from those who are engaged in it. 
and you guide leaders in a new direction uh, and a new pace in, in leadership. Let's talk about what a hurried life in leadership looks like so that we know what it is that we're trying to address. Yeah, well, I think what hurried leadership sometimes looks like, especially for those of us who uh, uh, would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we would describe ourselves as, as Christian leaders or people of Christian influence, I think hurried looks like trying to get as much done as possible. And so the length of my to-do list or the density of my calendar or, or, or you know, accomplishing enough stuff but I think fruit is measured, you know, kingdom productivity is measured differently than that. I think it's, I think it's measured relationally. I think fruit that lasts in the language of Jesus always involves people. Uh, that's fruit that will, you know, last beyond even our own lifetimes, those relationships. And I also think fruit that lasts is something that happens in the context of our deepening and our growing communion with the God who invites us into influence, who entrusts us with influence. And so unhurried leadership, therefore, is a leadership that is lived and exercised at the pace of Jesus, as I say, at the pace of grace. I love that you um, you emphasize fruit that lasts. Um, because that's what we're really called to, not just bearing mm. fruit that withers, but fruit that lasts. Yeah. Yeah, I was just today, for example, had a lunch with a friend. He had been a college student in our ministry 25 years ago, and he's still, he and his wife and his family are still enjoying the journey with Jesus we began together so long ago. And I, I love the opportunity to think of fruit in my own life and in my own work as that impact I get to have at God's invitation in the lives of people. And I don't have to be an official titled leader in the life of, of another to have a blessing uh, influence, a, a graced influence, an encouraging influence, a helping influence. I, I think you get a chance to serve people when you slow down just a little bit. I love the illustration that you um, that you offer. You write that hurried leadership makes me think of a childhood toy called a Chinese finger trap. Um, talk a little bit about that toy and how uh, doing just the opposite of what might seem intuitive may in fact be the right thing. Yeah, so maybe we can think of, uh, I, I think of being a kid and having one of these, you, you put a, a finger in one of one hand in one end and a finger of uh, the other hand at the other end, and then you pull and the thing tightens on you. And if you're a little <laughs> kid, you think, oh no, I got to get out of this. And so what do I do? Well, I pull harder. And of course, any of us who've seen one of these toys, we know when you pull harder, it gets tighter. And I think it's a great image of what sometimes our instinct when things get tight, when things get stressful, when things get anxious, when things become fearful for us, and we feel constricted, we feel, you know, we feel stressed, we think the answer is go faster, pull harder. And in fact, I think, you know, God invites us to slow down. He says, are you weary? Are you burdened? Come to me, and you'll find rest for your souls. There's that counterintuitive sort of, you know what, the way to peace is not do more things. The way to peace is discover that I I'm in relationship with an absolute prince of peace. And peace for me will be more of a relational reality 
than somehow a change necessarily in my situation. I think so much of what God wants to give us is right there for the receiving. And sometimes, at least I speak for myself, I can find myself running past Him, trying to find it somewhere else. And I feel a little silly when I wake up to that reality. Yeah, I think far too many of us far too often have that same experience. You're right. What Mm. if we learn to do exactly the opposite of what we would do impulsively? We might experience what Isaiah described in repentance and rest is your salvation in quietness and trust is your strength that uh, doesn't often um, reflect how we engage in leadership and that contrast i think is reason for pause yeah isn't that an amazing phrase that uh, in repentance and rest in quietness and trust and i like to think of the two words that i that are used in that isaiah passage about uh, strength and salvation those to me are leadership words, you know, strength. We want leaders who will take action and be strong for us. Salvation, we want them to get us out of the mess we maybe find ourselves in. But we probably wouldn't uh, think first that the kind of leader we want is one who's repentant and restful and quiet and trusting. And yet, if we're talking about kingdom leadership, if we're talking about influence in the spirit of your kingdom come, you know, your, your will be done, well, then learning to walk where Jesus is walking and learning to do the sorts of things Jesus is doing in a particular moment, learning how to live that way happens best in the, in the context of paying good attention, of turning my attention to God, that repentance movement, of, of being quiet in the sense of instead of my first impulse being to say something, maybe my first impulse is to listen for something. Uh, and... I love how each of those words uh, are very much a receptive orientation to our lives and a receptive orientation to the God who is always with us. Mm. You write that when we look for someone who will save us from our troubles, the qualifications at the top of the list are rarely repentance and rest. We tend to want leaders who will take charge and get moving. Uh, repentance sounds to the untrained ear like a reversal or perhaps like a lack of confidence. And as for rest, we want leaders who are going, uh, going to work until they solve our problem or drop trying. Many leaders find uh, feel the pressure to produce something that at least appears to be leadership. How do we begin to become an unhurried leader when uh, there is a, a subtle and perhaps not so subtle pressure to move quickly in a way that may be um, counterproductive? Yeah, it's not easy. I, th- what I like to say is um, uh, this idea of living unhurried, this idea of leading unhurried, this isn't original to me just because I've written a couple of books with this word in its title. What I really want to say is that this is the genius of Jesus' way of living. Jesus comes into the world, and instead of jumping into ministry the minute he becomes an adult, he lives a life of 30 years and then steps into ministry. And then when he gets launched after the baptism in the ministry, there are weeks in the wilderness in which he is tempted and led by the Spirit, it says. What I'd like to say is that I think if we keep our eyes on Jesus and in, in, and the way he lives in the Gospels, we will learn what we need to learn about this fruitful and unhurried way. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking uh, with Alan Fadling. He's the author of An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Alan Fadling. He's the author of An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence. He's also the best-selling author of An Unhurried Life. Well, let's talk about the elements of uh, of becoming an unhurried leader. Your book guides leaders into a new view of kingdom leadership. Let's talk about leading from abundance. What does that mean, and how does that help uh, the pace of, of leadership? Yeah, so there's a passage in the Old Testament. It's one where uh, we may not have parked a lot, but uh, there's this beautiful vision in the, the prophet Ezekiel that that's an image of a temple from which begins a trickle of water that becomes this roaring river that moves to a wilderness, brings new life to it, r- rolls into the Dead Sea, and brings it to life, literally resurrects a Dead Sea. And I think it's an image, it's a biblical image of what it could look like if we were to practice those simple words of Jesus. He says, seek first, you know, God's kingdom, God's righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. Of course, there he's talking about food and clothing, and maybe for most of us, that's not the biggest worry on our on our list. But there are other things we worry about. There are other concerns we have in our relationships and our roles of influence. And I think when we learn how at the most practical possible levels to always seek God first, to make that foundational, to make that the root system, then instead of leading out of emptiness, trying to get something out there that I need by leading the way I lead, I can lead from a place of abundance, a place of rootedness, a place of being deeply at home. And then I bring abundance to the places where I have influence. You offer um, uh, questions that unhurry leaders. Uh, Explain some of the questions that one should ask to help relegate a pace that produces fruit that remains? Yeah, well, uh, usually the questions we ask ourselves, uh, you know, have to do with exterior things. You know, am I getting enough done? Do I know the right people? Am I, am I making a good pace out there in the work that I do? And those are valuable, perfectly good questions. But I think the kinds of questions that uh, I'm talking about are questions of soul. Mm-hmm. You know, why, for example, why am I so anxious sometimes? You know, I think a lot of us can at times wrestle with anxiety. And I've come to think more recently, you know, and this will sound silly to say it this way, but maybe Jesus is right about anxiety. You know, maybe it doesn't actually add an inch to my stature <laughs> or add any money to my portfolio or improve my, you know, uh, vocational life even one iota. Maybe maybe anything I could do in anxiety, I could actually do a whole lot better in peace. And I think that's part of the genius of Jesus' unhurried way. You also write about unhurried influence. And I think leaders certainly want to set a good example to be men and women of influence, whether that's uh, in, in the boardroom or we're talking about the, the mm. dining room. Um, talk a bit about um, unhurried influence and how that contributes to this notion of bearing fruit, but fruit that remains. Yeah, I think when we think of influence, sometimes we assume that mostly has to do with things we do. And it does, of course. We want to do good things. We want to do um, helpful things uh, that will bless other people. But in many ways, if we think about the people who've been of greatest influence in our lives, and we think about what it was about them that influenced us, so often it's something about who they were. And this idea of unhurried is not, I'm not talking about, you know, cut your to-do list in half. I'm not talking about prune your calendar by, you know, 30% or something. It's not a calendar question. It's a question of soul. It's who I am. And that's 
my my point of influence in the lives of others. And so my desire, my hope, and, and what I hope this book will help others do is that as we follow Jesus' unhurried way, that he's unhurried enough to see the person crossing his path. He's unhurried enough to enjoy time with the Father, no matter how crowded the crowds get. He's unhurried enough to see temptation coming and say say a simple no to it. When I'm that kind of unhurried, my life becomes a place of influence. Who I am, you know, becomes a place of influence. You also write about prayer as a primary influence. Yeah, um... Sometimes when leaders think about prayer, they they imagine that as sort of prayer and leadership are kind of almost like two different islands. And maybe if you're an extroverted, driven, get things done kind of person, you like leadership. And if you're a little quieter, a little more reflective, or maybe you're introverted, maybe you're kind of more liking the prayer side of things. One of the things I try to say in that chapter is I think prayer and leadership are deep intersection in the kingdom. You know, when you think of Jesus, was Jesus a great leader or was Jesus a great prayer? I think the answer is he was richly both. You mm-hmm. think about Paul. He was a man of incredible influence. Think of the Roman Empire and what happens there because of his journeys. And yet you can't miss that he had church after church after church on his heart, regularly praying for them. What I wanted to say is that prayer isn't about helping us lead better. Prayer is leading in the sense that we bring to God the real needs of people. We don't just pray for the things they'd ask us to pray for. That's good. That's loving. But Paul's prayers sort of get down a little closer to the heart of things. He prays for relationships. He prays for their souls. He prays for their communion with God, that it would grow deeper. That's a way in which I think prayer becomes a place of influence. Mm. I mentioned in your introduction that you wanted to deal with the dynamics of your outer life of relationships and work and leadership. How has uh, Mm. focusing on being an unhurried leader changed the way you function as a leader? Yeah, well, one of the ways I think that's been perhaps most important is uh, I can get so busy that I'll be in a conversation with someone and then my eyes will be about five degrees off to the side of them because I'm already thinking about the next thing on my list that I need to run after. Mm. And I don't think that's something Jesus would do. I think the, the fact that he could stop for poor blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road when his disciples were urging him to get moving, because we got an agenda, it's very important, we got to get to that next town. I think Jesus is fully present to the person before him. I think if just that, if we were able to slow down enough to see that person that we might be tempted to think, you know, you're not on my calendar, you weren't on my to-do list today, I've got important things to do, but even to have a few moments to look that person in the eye, to let them know we're glad that we have the chance to be with them, that they matter to us, that they're important and valuable. I think that kind of people focus. Uh, I'm better at that when I slow down, and I'm not very good at it when I'm in a big hurry. You have a chapter titled, Unhurrying Our Thoughts. Sometimes we can moderate our activity, but our thoughts are always racing. There's this constant um, input uh, around us. How do you unhurry your thoughts? Well, I tell you, I I have a a fun little exercise. It may sound like a silly one, but I will literally sometimes sort of, if you use engine language, I'll put the dipstick, I'll pull it out, and I will quite literally just write down for a few minutes the thoughts that are running through my mind. And some of them are mundane, but some of them are, are a little... Toxic. Anxiety, as I shared, you know, that's one of my places of continuing spiritual recovery. 
I can worry for no good reason at all. I don't even have to have something bad happen to find myself in a place like that. And so sometimes, rather than just try and figure out what to do with that anxiety, I'll just take a moment and write some of the thoughts that are behind the curtains of that anxiety. And sometimes just seeing some of the things I'm thinking about my situation, about another person, seeing those things in the light of having written them down in my journal or or something like that, actually slows me down. See, the kinds of thoughts that hurry my thinking are, are things like anxiety or, or insecurity or, or fear or a kind of drivenness to prove myself out there because I don't believe I matter already as one of God's beloved children. So those kinds of thoughts, when I take a moment and put them out, you can just put them down on a piece of paper for a few moments, often slows down that racing mind that they sometimes wrestle with. Well, this is such a a wonderful book to encourage us to stop and really reflect on Mm -hmm. how we're navigating in the role of leadership that God has appointed us us to, whether that's, again, with a title or in our own household. And I thank you for uh, providing a resource that can help us uh, stop and take stock of areas that might be intuitive to us, but may be counterproductive Mm -hmm. to what God is calling us to. Thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Great to be with you. Appreciate it very much. Again, Alan Fadling is the title of the book, and it's simply An Unhurried Leader. Uh, He writes that an unhurried leader, that they are different. Rather than fill their lives with noise, unhurried leaders make time for silence in which to listen, quietness. Rather than allow anxiety to drive them, unhurried leaders learn to depend on a reliable God who invites them to join a good kingdom work already well underway. That's trust. Rather than tackle self-initiated projects under the guise of doing them for God, unhurried leaders humbly orient themselves to the leader of all, learning to take their cues from him. That's repentance. And unhurried leaders also learn to rest as hard as they work. And rather than measuring the productivity of their lives only in terms of what they do, unhurried leaders understand the importance of certain things they don't do. Great book. Again, Um, Alan Fadling, the author. News and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Well, thanks to the investigative work of uh, Daily Signal reporter Kevin Mooney, we have details of how activists in one school district, we'll tell you more about that in a moment, shaped the new transgender policy that was adopted by the Hopewell Valley Regional Board of Education in New Jersey. It's a rather surprising story, but I suppose it shouldn't be. Joining us to talk about it is Kevin Mooney. Again, he's a reporter for The Daily Signal. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You begin your story by writing that freshman football players changing in their high school locker room at the beginning of the school year were startled to encounter a girl who said she identifies as a boy. The father of one of the players wrote to the school principal and athletic director to express concern about the young lady and the comfort of the boys, most of whom were 14 at the time, and wondering what was going on. Now, the first thing that shocked me when I read those uh, those two lines was the fact that the father of the son, who's... Uh, encounter with a girl in the locker room um, uh, was completely unaware of of how this was possible or that it was uh, at the time acceptable in that school district. Yeah, I think a big part of the problem is they just coerced this this policy through um, at the behest of a of a pressure group from outside of the district. 
And the father you know, was certainly aware of the national politics and how the, all this entered into the equation, but he simply was asking the administration if they could if they could inform the student body about the details of the new transgender policies they had approved the summer before the school year started. Um, so he was asking for a little more information and communication, and, and that's where this email exchange began. So let's talk about what the policy is and the timing uh, being linked to uh, provision from the previous administration. Yeah, well, uh, as you know, uh, things have changed at the federal level. The Obama administration had reinterpreted that provision of federal law, uh, Title IX, to say that it, that it should be expanded to include transgender people. The law had never been legislated that way. So Trump completely uprooted that and put the, threw the matter back to the states. So the, the the advantage is that states and localities now have some latitude in terms of how they shape these policies um, while this thing continues to gestate at the federal level. But that was sort of the impetus behind this at move that by the school district. Yeah, right. That, that, that was sort of the backdrop of it. Um, but that excuse doesn't exist for them anymore. You don't have, you do not have the the uh, admin, the White House administration coercing these policies down a local school district. That's been thrown out. Um, so uh, n- now it just falls back to what your state statutes say. And New Jersey does have a law that says that you shouldn't discriminate against people on the basis of gender identity. And I read that to mean that they can't be excluded from participating in larger school activities like sports or, or other activities. But it doesn't necessarily say that you have to f- allow them to go into bathrooms that don't correspond with their biology. And that's the really radioactive part of this of this new of this new uh, school guideline. Now, one of the things that struck me was that uh, it wasn't that this father who wrote the uh, uh, the correspondence to the district uh, was uninformed, but that parents were not informed. There was never an opportunity for them to uh, find out what the school district was doing, to weigh in on whether or not they were concerned about it. Uh, there was no effort. Uh, to let the students know this is what's going to happen here. Uh, and that was part of this partnership that suggested that it, it was just such a no-brainer. It wasn't really necessary uh, to introduce it as something unusual or to be concerned about. I think the real real big problem here is how much influence they allowed a pressure group from outside of the district to exert over the shaping of their policy. Now, it's true that we're living in what I would call very strange times where these issues are popping up and school districts may have to wrestle with it in some way. Uh, but it seems to me the, the local parents and taxpayers who are footing the bill and paying the salaries of six-figure administrators uh, should have some say in how the policy is promoted and, and pushed in advance um, rather than letting uh, a group from outside of the district basically write their whole policy form. So I think it was the incestuous relationship, if you will, between a self-described LGBT advocacy group and school administrators who were very compliant with the agenda of this group, uh, carrying the water for a special interest rather than advancing the public interest. That's what this is really about. So this was instituted back in uh, 2016, shortly before the start of the school year. What's the status there now? Is it just continued because the state has not challenged them? Or what's what's the status now and what might parents there anticipate moving forward? Well, the policy is still in place. Um, and I, I think what's happened is I see a lot of parents who, after all, have their kids in school and their kids in the district, uh, they just don't really want to get involved. And they don't want to be identified as somebody speaking out against the policy because they're worried about how it might blow back on their families and their kids. But then, of course, the problem with that thinking is that you sort of leave the field open to the pressure group on the other side to sort of have their way with the school district. So, you know, everybody has to leave their comfort zone a little bit if you want to have an impact on public policy. So right now the policy is in place. I mean, it is, after all, New Jersey. 
Um, there's uh, uh, it has what I would call a very progressive state legislature. So those contours all figure into the equation. Nevertheless, since local school districts do have latitude to sort of set their own policy, and this all works better if you have robust, open, and transparent uh, conversations and debate about what the policy should be, rather than letting a, uh, an outside special interest interest group set the agenda. Yeah, is this an isolated incident, or is this something that parents and taxpayers should uh, should be keeping an eye open for? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the group, which is known as Garden State Equality, has been sending memos out to superintendents all across the state, uh, offering up their own guidelines and proposals for how they should shape their policy. Um, obviously, they had a big impact in this Hopewell School District. Apparently, they've also had an influence in Princeton and also in West Windsor, from what I understand, which is all in Mercer County in central Jersey. How far they've gotten into other states, there are... The figures we have in the article, there are, are 25 districts out of the 584 oper- operating school districts in New Jersey that have some kind of transgender policy. Um, and so it's still a matter of debate in a lot of those other districts. So clear- clearly this group is trying to burrow in, uh, but uh, this Hopewell School District has basically led the way. I mean, from what I can see, there's really no daylight between what they adopted and what this outside group proposed. Well, I appreciate your bringing this to our attention, and I think it does remind us that we need to be vigilant about what's happening in our respective states. I'm grateful that under the current administration, there's been a sort of a, a drawback from what uh, the president, uh, President Obama attempted to do. But we do need to remain vigilant about who's influencing policies in our respective states and uh, and school districts. Yeah, well, you don't have the pressure from on top from the federal level. Yeah. So that, that level is a playing field enormously. That is That is the good part. I would say the you know the challenge now is it sounds cliche, but people have to get organized and get active. Uh, you know that old Nixon phrase about the silent majority. I mean, the overwhelming majority have understandable misgivings about these policies, but they're a little intimidated about showing up with professional antagonists to show up and force at these school board meetings. But until they start doing that, uh, a narrow, well-funded, well-connected special interest will continue to call the shots, and I think that's bad news for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin Mooney, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Kevin Mooney is a reporter for The Daily Signal, and his investigative uh, reporting on the subject uh, made uh, many people around the country aware of the challenges that lay ahead, this being just one of them. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, uh, the. Uh, Nonprofit. Well, we actually went into that earlier. We'll talk about a number of things. I have to figure out where we are in my lineup here, but we'll get into the uh, Ossoff uh, loss that um, was puzzling to some. And uh, as you heard in, at the top of the hour, kind of a brief editorial on whether or not these kinds of races tell us anything about the midterms, because politicians are always making something out of what may in fact be nothing. But there is a, something of a pattern and whether or not that uh, should be of concern to the Democrats Uh, We'll explore that just a little bit. And we'll talk about what's happening in the Oregon legislature with regard to taxes, taxes and more taxes. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, yesterday afternoon, the San Francisco Superior Court tossed out 14 of the 15 criminal charges that had been brought by the state of California against two journalists from the Center for Medical Progress. 
after they released a series of undercover videos exposing Planned Parenthood's possible involvement in illegal fetal tissue trafficking. Well, in late March, you might recall, California Attorney General Xavier Bacara, he charged David Delayden and Sandra Merritt with 15 felony charges for recording what he deemed to be confidential communications. Today, or yesterday rather, a judge dismissed 14 of those charges, but will still consider the remaining 15th charge against Merritt alone for conspiring to invade privacy. In a statement, uh, an official with the group representing Merritt said they were optimistic about having this charge dropped as well. He also pointed out that Bacara received thousands of dollars in campaign donations from both Planned Parenthood and NARAL during the time as a, a, a Democratic congressman, probably should have recused himself. The San Francisco Superior Court on Wednesday dismissed the 14 uh, criminal counts with the 15th remaining, but the pair are still charged with one count. The court ruled that uh, one uh, through 14 were legally insufficient. The state has the opportunity to amend it if they can uh, plead a more legally sufficient and specific complaint. The California Attorney General filed 15 charges, uh, 15 counts, if you will, against Merritt with counts 1 through 14 for each of the alleged interviews and count 15 for an alleged conspiracy. San Francisco County Superior Court Judge Christopher Height gave the state attorney general's office until mid-July to file a revised complaint. Well, aside from being a victory for the freedom of the press, this decision is another big win for uh, the organization who has made it their business to draw the public's attention to what Planned Parenthood is doing. They're cleared of criminal charges last year in Texas as well, you might uh, recall. They've been vindicated against the frequent claim from uh, pro-abortion advocates that they engage in illegal activity and duplicitous uh, editing of footage to falsely incriminate Planned Parenthood. There's still a civil lawsuit on this matter pending in California brought against the uh, organization by Planned Parenthood and the National Abortion Federation. And unlike these criminal charges, however, that unit does not carry the threat of jail time. And again, we're talking about the Center for Medical Progress, one uh, charge in this most recent case still pending. Well, a plan to raise $550 million in health care taxes to fund Oregon's Medicaid program is on its way to Governor Kate Brown's desk, probably there already, after the state Senate passed it on a bipartisan vote on Wednesday. Uh, Brown plans to sign the bill, which he describes as a top priority for lawmakers this season. It includes a new tax on health insurance premiums and an increase in taxes on hospitals. It's the first major tax change to pass the legislature this session. My guess is there will be more to follow. The amount of new corporate taxes that Oregon and House Democrats plan to um, raise appears to be dwindling by the day, but their plan to approve it without a single Republican vote rubs GOP lawmakers the wrong way. The state needs to close a shortfall in its Medicaid budget for the next two years. Now, some Republicans suggest you need to wait because that landscape will be changing under Republican leadership in Washington, and this tax will still be looming whether or not it's necessary under that new plan. But uh, the uh, Medicaid budget for the next two years has a shortfall due to an anticipated decrease in federal funding for people enrolled under the expansion in the Affordable Care Act. The change is unrelated to Congressional Republicans' proposal to repeal and replace the law. At least the Democrats say Republicans beg to differ. Oregon House passes um, uh, passed rather the $550 million tax bill to fund Medicaid uh, yesterday. Lawmakers narrowly passed it. The Senate voted 20 to 10 for the bill with three Republicans, Minority Leader Ted Faroli of John Day, Senator Fred Girard of Staten, and Senator Jackie Winters of Salem voting for the bill. 
uh, Ferrioli said that the he dislikes the tax on insurance premiums in particular, but he said he endorses uh, trying to do the greatest good for the most people, even if it comes with a downside. It's not perfect, he went on to say, but added that it may be the key vote of this legislative session in terms of how we balance our budget and how we proceed in an orderly fashion out of this building. So hold on to your wallets because there's going to be more money coming out of them. Well, the amount of the new corporate taxes that Oregon House Democrats plan to raise appears to be dwindling by the day as well, with the latest proposal clocking in roughly $200 million instead of the $900 million they'd hoped for two weeks ago. And with the days ticking down to the 10th of July, the deadline to balance the state budget, House Democrats also appear ready to pass their new plan without any Republican support. The move could cause a turbulent end to the session and imperil important legislation like a transportation funding bill that's already on the rocks. House Minority Leader Mike McLean, a Republican out of Powell Butte, warned that passing Democrats' plan, which uh, would scale back the 2013 tax break for certain businesses with a simple majority vote, would violate a requirement in the Oregon Constitution for the three-fifths supermajority to raise taxes. Democrats need one Republican vote in both the House and the Senate to achieve a supermajority. House Speaker Tina Kotek, Democrat out of Portland, is putting her own reputation and the credibility of the legislature at risk in a desperate money grab, McLean said in a statement. Her actions show a shocking level of disregard for this institution and for the people we collectively swore and oath to serve. But a spokeswoman for Kotex said House Democrats would be on firm legal ground if they pass their tax plan by a simple majority. Either way, the speaker hopes there will be broad bipartisan support for the plan because it's necessary to fix the unintended consequence of the runaway tax break from 2013. Politicians tend to see tax breaks as runaway Um, that's what politicians do. Some Democrats say the tax break intended for farmers and other small businesses was exploited by wealthy law practices, doctors' offices, and others who can afford to pay more. McLean and other Republicans particularly object to scaling back the 2013 tax break because it was part of a deal known as the grand bargain under which opposing sides agreed to make tough choices to both raise taxes and cut public pension costs in a spirit of cooperation for the good of the state. But what's good for the state at one legislative session may be interpreted as as not so good for the future. Pension reforms passed as part of that deal were subsequently largely undone by the 2015 Supreme Court ruling, however, and now this threatens to undo other elements of it. That was less than four years ago, McLean said. Sadly, it appears that the word of Democratic leadership has a shelf life. When it passed, the combination of tax cuts and increases in the grand bargain, as it was called, was expected to raise a net total of more than $200 million in new revenue, with $100 million of that going to K-12 through schools and the remainder to higher education and human services. Since then, however, questions have arisen over whether the business tax break um, served its original purpose to help grow traded sector companies and increase employment. It applies to companies whose owners and shareholders report the profits on their personal income tax returns. Senator Mark Haas, a Democrat out of Beaverton, recently said it had the unintended consequence of lowering taxes for suits and scrubs, lawyers and doctors, who weren't the intended beneficiaries. And it appears that the Democrats will, as they are in the majority, have their way on that. Well, Jamie Solterio is the owner of Hamali Boy Restaurant. He's opposing a sugary beverage tax that could be on the county ballot in November. A sugary ballot tax. Well, the judge's ruling last week will trigger what's expected to be a record-setting ballot measure campaign as Portland becomes the latest city to consider a proposed tax on sugary beverages. 
On the 15th of this month, Multnomah Circuit Judge Adrian Nelson approved the ballot title sought by proponents of a uh, countywide measure that would ta- that would uh, tax soda and other beverages 1.5 cents per ounce or 18 cents for a 12-ounce can. That means the campaign can begin in earnest. Supporters now plan to gather more than 17,000 signatures to put the measure before voters in November. If they succeed, it will mean an estimated $28 million a year for Multnomah County intended to be spent on children's health programs. The ballot fight follows similar ones in cities across the country, ranging from Philadelphia to San Francisco. Recently, soda tax supporters have been winning these fights, but proponents are keeping an eye on legislative proposals in Salem to raise a variety of taxes, which could lead to a messy ballot in November. Well, despite supportive early polls, proponents are doing extra polling to keep tabs on how things are looking with this rather abnormal legislative session that we are still in the middle of, says Christina Bottomer of the Oregon, or rather the American Heart Association's Oregon chapter, which is spearheading the campaign. We don't have our poll back uh, yet uh, on what may or may not hurt us, so we're looking forward to getting more information, as are we, the taxpayers, who, if we buy sugary beverages or sweet drinks, which may or may not be sugary, uh, may have to pay. Now, it's not clear, because the ballot title was just approved, um, what uh, precisely um, this will uh, include. Does it include... Um, Fruit drinks, for example, does it include uh, beverages that are artificially sweetened? Is it the, a matter of them tasting sweet or actually having sweeteners added that are unhealthy? We'll find all of that out as this will be on the ballot in Oregon, or at least in Portland, a tax on sweet drinks headed for the ballot. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 31 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I could put this one in the category of I saw this one coming. A recent insurance study links increased car crash claims to legalized recreational marijuana. Well, duh. The Highway Loss Data Institute, a leading insurance research group, said the study results uh, released today that collision claims in Washington, Oregon, Colorado were up 2.7 percent in the year since legalized Recreational marijuana sales started when compared to the surrounding states. Legal recreational pot sales in Colorado began in January of 2014, followed uh, six months later in Washington and in October 2015 in Oregon. We believe that the data is saying that crash risk has increased in these states and those crash risks are associated with the legalization of marijuana. That's a quote from Matt Moore, senior vice president with the Institute, which analyzes insurance data to observe emerging auto safety trends. Mason Tvert, a marijuana legalization advocate and a communications director of the Marijuana Policy Project, questioned the study's comparison um, in rural states such as Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and Colorado, Oregon, and Washington uh, that have dense population centers and how they affected the study's findings. Well, the study raises more questions than it provides um, answers for, he went on to say, and it's an area that would surely receive more study and deservedly so, he said. Well, researchers accounted for factors such as the number of vehicles on the road in the study and control states, age and gender of drivers, weather, and even whether the driver's um, a driver making a claim was employed. Neighboring states with similar fluctuations and claims were used before comparison. 
Insurance industry groups have been keeping a close watch on these claims when auto accidents across the country started to go up back in 2013 after more than a decade of steady decline. Insurance companies found several possible factors at play in the spike that included distracted driving through texting and cell phone use, road construction and an improved economy that has led to leisurely drivers and driving and more miles driven as well as marijuana legalization. So whether or not you want to accept the findings, it's played at least some role in those numbers, we're told. Well, following the uh, the race in Georgia, which was essentially insignificant, although it was made more significant by its proximity to the election in 2016 and the midterms to come, it was a struggle without a message, some suggest, for the Democrats and the media. Some are blaming Nancy Pelosi. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. But Jim um, Garrity, writing on the uh, the matchup for The Washington Post, said, If you fall short in an open seat special election in a district uh, Trump barely carried with a candidate who avoids gaffes and with a giant spending advantage, just where the heck are you going to win? Well, the media adoration of Ossoff is over. Planned Parenthood poured some $734,000 into the Ossoff campaign. Democrats are struggling to fundraise. And in fact, the DNC said this is the worst month since uh, 2003. Byron York, writing for um, uh, the Washington Examiner, says... Uh, Uh, Talking to voters during a door-knocking session with conservative activists in uh, Georgia 06 earlier this month revealed a sentiment shared by a lot of Trump supporters. Give him a chance, they said over and over. They sense correctly that Democrats in Congress have sought not just to oppose Trump from day one, but hope to actually remove him from office through the Russia investigation. I think it's a witch hunt, rather. They're not giving him a chance, one man in Marietta, Georgia, told me. And he said that was something of a trend in his door-to-door conversations. Rich Lowry writes uh, for Politico, there's no doubt that Democrats want to watch TV programs that excoriate the president. They want to give money to candidates opposing him. They want to fantasize about frog marching him straight from his impeachment proceedings to the nearest federal penitentiary. But do they want to do the one thing that would that would make it easier to win tough races in marginal areas, namely moderate on the cultural issues? Not so much. And finally, writing for uh, uh, speaking for CNN, David Gergen says what's really important is that Donald Trump has seized the narrative back that he's doing better with the voter than Democrats think he is. It should be a wake up call for Democrats. It is possible that he could actually get reelected if Democrats aren't careful. Sort of a, a warning shot. Sometimes politics boils down to narratives. Jared uh, Stepman writing for the Daily Signal points out that this was the case in Tuesday's special election in Georgia, where Republican Karen Handel defeated Democrat John Ossoff to take a House seat previously occupied by Tom Price, now the Secretary of Health and Human Services and a Republican. Well, the election became a nationalized proxy war between Republicans and Democrats, drawing intense news coverage, wild spending from both parties. Georgia's 6th Congressional District residents were utterly bombarded by an overload of electioneering and ads. After nearly 40 years of Republican control, the district seemed to be up for grabs. But Ossoff was soundly defeated, despite having led by slight margins in a number of polls. Democrats had hoped to pluck off a surprise win and launch a narrative of victory in a referendum on President Donald Trump. Their hopes were dashed. Democrats are now zero to four in special elections against Republicans during the Trump presidency. According to Ballotopia, Democrats spent just over $25 million in those four elections, Montana, Kansas, South Carolina, and Georgia. And according to the New York Times, Ossoff received $7.6 million from outside groups for his campaign, so a total of at least $32 million. 
But both parties put a lot of weight into the Georgia election outcome and waged a ferocious battle to pull out to pull out a win. The result of this political arms race was a little bit like the famed World War One battle of Verdun between France and Germany. The tactical value of the piece of land being fought over was marginal, but both sides had committed so much blood and treasure that they were fearful of pulling resources from the fight. Retreat became impossible. This single House seat would have made little impact on the vote margin of the Republican-dominated House, but Democrats were desperate to demonstrate that their political fortunes were turning in an anti-Trump wave in the vein of the Tea Party surge in 2010. Though Republicans didn't quite pull out all the stops in the financial tit-for-tat, they certainly scrambled to match the Democrats. The sheer amount of money invested in the race rose to staggering levels, seemingly raising the stakes even further. Ossoff, who couldn't vote in the election because he didn't live in the district, frequently railed on the campaign trail about money in politics and about political action committees in Washington, D.C., dumping money into his opponent's campaign coffers. Yet he himself received a massive influx of dollars from the liberal San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, the Mercury News reported that he received three times as many donations from the Bay Area than from Georgia in the two months before the election. Well, the campaign shattered spending records. As uh, Rachel D. Guidance uh, reported, the race between Ossoff and Handel is the most expensive house race Ever, CBS News reported with fundraising uh, exceeding $50 million. By the end of May, Handel and Ossoff had spent $3.2 million and $22.5 million, respectively, according to campaign finance reports filed with the Federal Election Commission, ABC News reported. To put this in perspective, more money was spent on this single House race than on Jimmy Carter's 1980 presidential election against Ronald Reagan. And so it goes until the midterm elections. Well, Democrat John Ossoff's finish behind the Republican Karen Handel in Georgia's special house election on Tuesday night was a real um, barn burner, but the loser may be Nancy Pelosi, the House minority leader. While Pelosi is in no immediate danger of losing her House perch, she increasingly is becoming the face of a period of Democratic stagnation that's seen a once mighty majority systematically deteriorate during her tenure. I think you'd have to be an idiot to think we could win the House with Pelosi at the top. That's a quote from Representative Fileman Vela. Uh, bluntly told, uh, politi- speaking to uh, Politico, Nancy Pelosi is not the only reason that Ossoff lost, but she certainly is one of the reasons. Well, as Speaker of the House in 2009, she presided over a 225-seat majority, which was wiped out by the next election when Democrats fell in ni- uh, fell to 193 seats. In three election cycles since then, Pelosi's party has netted a single House seat. Those seeking to be part of the next Democratic majority are already seeking separation from her. Democrat Joe Cunningham running in, uh, to unseat Republican Mark Sanford in South Carolina tweeted soon after announcing his candidacy. If elected, I will not vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. Time to move forward and win again. And those uh, calls are coming from D.C. Uh, as well. Again, she's not in immediate danger. And she said uh, that she is a fighter and is uh, ready for the next bout that's to come. It will, will not be anytime soon. But nonetheless, many are looking to her as the last generation uh, and the next generation looking for new leadership. We'll see what actually happens. All right. 45 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I wanted to give you a quick update on how Dan Rice is doing. I just heard from him moments ago and... 
As I mentioned yesterday, we were concerned about uh, infection settling on his uh, artificial heart valve. We learned earlier today that that has, in fact, happened, although um, at this point it's it's not as extensive as we've seen in the past. So uh, they've identified the bacteria, they know where it is, and now they're trying to determine what specific antibiotic to pump into his heart over a period of time to try to kill that so that it doesn't result in further surgery. He uh, sent me a text just a few moments before the program began and uh, let me know that, um, in fact, they are going to send him home. And there was some concern about whether or not he could administer the antibiotics himself, if it would be by mouth or uh, through some sort of device. And we've learned that uh, he's going to be able to manage a device that he'll wear uh, for the next, I don't know what period of time, uh, to treat uh, the infection with an antibiotic. So we're grateful that um, he's going to get to come home in the next couple of days, that they have uh, at least... Uh, a plan for attacking um, the uh, the infection, and hopefully that will result in his restored health. Now, I have to tell you, um, we've been through this very same thing before. In fact, uh, he has had antibiotics pumped into this same kind of uh, bacterial infection before, and, and it didn't work. And I'm struggling with being hopeful, uh, but I've also determined that I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to run ahead. I'm not going to impose what happened before on what's happening now. God had his hand on Dan's life in 2011. He had his hand on Dan's life when this happened uh, some years before, and we're trusting that uh, that will be the case now. It's a long and difficult road, and um, sort of preparing for that and anticipating it is a a bit of a challenge, but I'm determined um, by the power of his Holy Spirit to have the right attitude moving forward. So I wanted to say thank you so much for your prayers. We are absolutely dependent upon uh, the support of the body of Christ and certainly God's hand of, of um, provision on uh, Dan's life and on our family. And I'm confident that at the other end of this road, whatever that um, may be, uh, that we can declare that God is good. And that is always the case. I do know that even through these few days that Dan's been in the hospital, that he, he's encouraging the staff. It doesn't matter how tired he is, whether or not he's eaten. In fact, I was with him earlier today, and uh, he had a procedure this morning. And uh, I think I left at about 1 o'clock, and he still hadn't eaten, but he was cheerful. He was careful to thank everybody who came into his room to help uh, provide whatever was needed at any given time. And he's just a man of character, and I'm seeing that consistency even through this uh, challenging circumstance. So I'm I'm proud of my husband, and I, I think that will be true throughout. So anyway, I wanted to give you a quick update on that. And I wanted to uh, remind you that we are headed into a very hot few days, so if you are sensitive to such things, uh, take note. And I'd also encourage you, if you have elderly neighbors, uh, folks you don't maybe see that often, be sure to check in on them. This hot weather can be very hard on the elderly and, of course, your pets. You probably already know that you need to take extra care for them. But according to uh, Oregonian, uh, we have no low clouds to stand in the way. The bright summer sun is coming in strong, of course, this morning and throughout the day with temperatures climbing to about 82. May have uh, exceeded that, I'm not certain. A north-northwest wind is going to help us feel more comfortable with gusts of 20 miles per hour by this afternoon, and I was out in that, and I can say it was a very pleasant relief. Uh, Friday, that's when things really start to get a bit 
toasty, as they say. Forecasters with the National Weather Service, they're watching a thermally induced surface trough gaining strength by Friday. Most of us have no idea what that means, but it sounds impressive when you hear it on the radio. And they're offering up the hot temperatures through the weekend. Models are still not in agreement as to the exact highs, but Saturday and Sunday temperatures look to range between 92 and 100 degrees. Wow. Beginning on Friday, expect a strong warm-up, but with a high of 91, light winds. Saturday cranks up the heat even more, with temperatures predicted to rise uh, to the mid-90s. At this point, uh, Sunday's temperatures are still in doubt, although we're hearing highs of about uh, 100. Uh, It's possible Saturday will have the peak temperature of 95, but if the trough continues on Sunday, that, again, could reach 100 degrees. Forecasters are fairly certain the thermal trough will uh, break down by Sunday night, and Monday's high temperature will be significantly cooler in the mid-80s, but very comfortable. I like the mid-80s, although I kind of like the 90s and you know, mid-90s as well. But that's what we can expect over the next few days. Be sure to look around and make sure the folks around you are being well taken care of. And again, the elderly are most uh, vulnerable, so check that out. In fact, I on really hot days, I always call my mom and remind her, you are not permitted to leave the house today. <laughs> you know, I've sort of taken over the role of um, of directing her on very hot days because it might seem perfectly acceptable, but when it's really hot and... um you're not aware of it, you can have a heat stroke fairly fairly easily. So anyway, that's coming up over the next few days. Now, tomorrow is Friday, and as is our custom, we're looking forward to a fun Friday program. All things considered, we're going to lighten up and take a look at some of the news stories that we don't typically cover during the course of a more serious news week, but we'll look forward uh, to that on Friday. So I hope you can uh, join us. All right. Um, I got nothing. I'm done. That's it. I know, Clark, we've got more time, but I'm done. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blind from, for rather, producing from afar. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.